And are you, um, are you seeing the shared screen? Oh, yes, yes. Okay, good. So the, uh, okay, so the, I want to talk about dreaming in holograms today. Um, I want to try out some things, basically talking online uh, instead of doing regular conference talks are really, really tricky. I've been doing them for the past three or four months now. Um, and there are a lot of things that you're used to doing in live presentations uh, before a real audience. That's a lot different when you're just online. One problem is always that every single joke lands flat because you never really get to hear what people say back. And another problem is always the technology. You have no idea what other people are seeing uh, at that particular time. So one of the things I'm doing is I'm actually playing with my avatar. I found this new tool uh, a few days ago called Avatarify, uh, which is basically a deep fake tool for replacing your own image on Zoom which is awesome. Um, but probably you can't even see this on the recorded video, but if anybody's out there who does get to see it, uh, I'm basically making myself look like Nicolas Cage right now Yeah. for anybody who's on. There we go. Um, so dreaming in holograms. Uh, the base point I want to take is just the timeline of holographic devices. And while in VR, you have a really pretty long history of what VR is going back to the sort of Damocles and these government projects. Uh, AR is fairly recent. There was a project that Carnegie Mellon did called, uh, I believe, Karma, which predates the most recent run of the technology. But for the most part, what we're talking about now is uh, what's coming out with primarily two devices. It's the HoloLens and the Magic Leap. And there are a few other devices uh, that are coming out at the same time. Uh, some of them have already failed, um, like the Meta. Uh, but everybody's trying to achieve the sort of same goal, having augmented reality that sits on top of your head. Um, and when I think of the timeline, I go back beyond this most recent run. And the recent run is probably from about 2010 to 2020 today. And it's been a pretty wild ride. But we can go back even further and imagine that the roots of AR visually, um, and the reason it's actually important for this whole generation of developers and tech leaders uh, is because it starts off with Star Wars. The next version of the sort of augmented reality world is with Star Trek, which is in 1987. And then the huge jump is Minority Report. And you see in each of these cases, new things are added on. So with Star Wars, you have this notion of uh, 3D holograms existing in the world. And that was kind of interesting because the whole art of traditional holography was really coming up at the same time where there are a lot of art exhibits around holography. And that's where the notion came from. With Star Trek, you had a really different vision, uh, which goes back to a lot of scientific science fiction tropes about having these alternate realities and alternate worlds that you could step into. And that's what the holodeck was in Star Trek. And finally, Minority Report, besides having these sorts of elements, added one more thing, which is hand gestures. So whereas you can think of Star Trek as really emphasizing speech recognition as their sort of main interface technology, 
while Star Wars was just straightforward tactile technology, uh, the minority report started getting into gestures. And the reason, again, that this sort of laying out the timeline is important and interesting is the history of modern AR headsets, uh, which is also called mixed reality, it's also called spatial computing, really begins with the Kinect. Uh, the Kinect starts off in 2010, basically, but actually goes back even five years earlier when Microsoft started as a Project Natal back in 2005 or so. Um, and what that gave us is really advanced computer vision uh, using low-cost devices. So when the original Kinect came out, it was about $150. Comparable devices um, probably ran to about $1,000 for a cheap depth camera at that point in time. So that was a game changer because it suddenly put these really cool tools in the hands of creative artists um, and just developers in general who got to really experiment with what was going on. And every time the Kinect came up, of course, everybody always harkened back to the Minority Report that we're finally living in the world of the Minority Report from eight years earlier. The next big jump was Google Glass in 2013, which wasn't really true AR. Uh, and that's just sort of an internal debate um, and a fairly obscure one. Uh, what Google Glass did do was it sparked a lot of people's imaginations. And that's what happens with a lot of these technologies. The way we think of it in our heads is a lot different from what it ever actually was. So when people talked about Google Glass, they talked about even people who'd used it, even people who wore it, would think about it in certain terms because it would trigger certain, uh, certain memories, usually memories of science fiction in their heads. Um, and they tend not to actually do a straight artifact to technology comparison. Um, and it took a while, even for people who are used to it, to realize that Google Glass didn't really do the things that we thought it, that it did, which was a fairly strange thing um, at the time. Uh, it's as if we're gaslighting ourselves about technology, but it turns out watching the past 10 years, that's fairly common. We're almost constantly gaslighting ourselves about the technology that we're using in a way that's not necessarily bad, but is definitely fascinating. Uh, Connect, the second version of the Connect came out in 2014. Uh, the HoloLens was finally announced in 2016. And the HoloLens actually comes out of the same team as the Connect because it's using these uh, 3D cameras in order to capture the world around you, turn it into 3D meshes, and then reinterpret it inside of a game engine inside the device itself. And the magic that that gives you is you can suddenly interact with the real world because you're creating this sort of digital skin over the real world. Um, so that your digital objects will interact with these digital skins. The digital skins are overlaid on top of the real walls and floor and objects in your room. So for your visual cortex, it gives the impression that what you're actually seeing is digital objects in stereoscope interacting with the world around you. And that's, that's sort of the heart of what all these headsets um, or these AR headsets are really meant to do. At the same time that... Uh, the HoloLens came out, there were all these fantastic rumors about another project going on in Florida called the Magic Leap. And they'd basically been in stealth mode for four years or so and had been gathering lots and lots of investments. Um, and that company is called the Magic Leap. Um, what was kind of impressive when it finally came out in 2018 was uh, they'd been in stealth mode for so long that nobody knew what they actually had. And when they finally came out with it, 
in many ways, it was a lot like the HoloLens. It used some of the same or very similar technology. Um, I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, but what was a really huge deal for them was they were able to double the field of view. Um, everybody was constantly complaining that the HoloLens had a very narrow field of view, a small window, and the Magic Leap's diagonal field of view was about double of that. Uh, then when the HoloLens 2 came out in 2020, it had also doubled the Magic Leap's field of view. And that sort of gives you the full history of the past decade, which is the decade of uh, augmented reality head mount displays. So about this whole same time, uh, I was working in the industry too. And I'd started off in say about 2010 when I was really bored to death doing a line of business applications and saw that there were these new technologies, especially coming out of Microsoft, such as their uh, Surface Table, which at that point in time was a touch table and not a laptop. Another really cool thing they had uh, after that was obviously the Kinect coming out for the Xbox. Um, and because I knew some of the underlying tools that are being used for these, I got a job at a digital agency called Razorfish. Uh, one of their offices was in Atlanta where I lived at the time. Um, and that sort of changed my world in a really huge way because the orientation of a digital agency is so much different from the orientation of a line of business consulting company. So when you talk about line of business, for the most part, you're talking about data entry. And people spent all this time since, I don't know, 1990, constantly reinventing how we enter data into databases. And that's more or less the whole business and there are variations on it, but that's the heart of it. Um, whereas at a digital agency, they're thinking of totally different things. They're taking things that you would see in the movies and try to actually recreate it uh, first on websites. But in the particular group I was working with, Emerging Experiences, it had to do with trying to recreate these technologies in the real world and for the most part, we're doing a lot of faking behind the scenes, a lot of rigging and wiring and so on, because the technology we're trying to replicate is probably 10 to 20 years uh, in the future. But we could definitely get parts of it going. Um, and that, that was just amazing. That changed my notion of what we could be doing as technologists. So once I started doing that and got into the agency world, uh, I started getting involved more with creative technology. And that's when I discovered Bill Buxton, who's just this amazing man who talks about experiences. And he changed a lot of the ways that we talked about experience in the agency world, and slowly uh, also even in the hardcore technology world. One of the big things he dealt with was um, the importance of experience. And it's not like he coined the phrase experience, but he really framed it in the right way so that people could understand it. And it's almost like um, it's the magic trick, right? Where the technology is really all the technique that goes into performing um, the magic trick that people see. But the experience is what they actually see. And there's a lot of art and showmanship that goes into that. And at the end of the day, nobody really wants to hear about the technology, but they're really fascinated by the experience and the experience is what they remember the most. And for anybody who does uh, data entry applications day after day, that's a huge mental shift to start thinking about that. And then at a certain point, just unmooring it, detaching it altogether from the technology and just trying to figure out what are the sorts of things that we wanna see about the future? What are the sorts of things that are cool and would even make our lives easier? And at the far end of that, what do we actually want out of technology at all? And during this whole period, I started becoming a gleaner. 
Um, and what a gleaner is, is somebody who just starts collecting things in the technology world. So Bill Buxton happens to be really into collecting um, your keyboard and your mouse. And he has a huge personal museum of these objects because it's what he does, uh, trying to understand how people interact with machines. And then for me, it was actually just sci-fi movies. Going through every sci-fi movie, cutting out clips, uh, cutting out pictures from them. And really, uh, it's just a collection thing at its root. But if you do it enough, you start realizing there are patterns with how these um, UI displays get made. And you realize also there's even a history to it where certain movies steal from other movies, which means certain XF effects uh, people are stealing from other FX people. And it keeps changing over time, where part of the job originally with FX in the sci-fi movies was probably just to come up with the coolest, wildest thing. And after a while, when people got bored with that, especially the FX people, their second thought was, how do we make uh, our UIs in sci-fi movies actually realistic? How can we do something that people will look at and start thinking they would actually be useful? And for me, in all of my gleaning, this is when the world of Bill Buxton's experience sort of came together with the really crazy sci-fi movies I was enjoying watching all the time. Because suddenly you discovered in sci-fi movies, people making serious attempts at trying to make their UI something somewhat usable and not just visually uh, some sort of visual carnival. And the other thing that comes out of this is there's a fantastic pleasure in just pursuing your dreams. I think it's hard for a lot of people to ever get to that point. Um, I think the trick is you just have to jump into it and look for those opportunities. Um, I'm not sure if I really put in a lot of effort. I think I just got very lucky and kept falling backwards into cooler and cooler things. But the other side of that is you always have to have a backup plan if you're going to start pursuing your dreams. But another really cool thing um, in doing all of this, and this comes out of having to rig so many things behind the scenes. I remember at one point I had colleagues who were, we were doing a car show where we actually had to have somebody sitting in the trunk uh, pressing buttons and holding wires together in order to create this very cool effect um, about the car of the future, right? Um, and what we discovered from that is that there's a lot to be said for just making the extra effort by efforting things, not taking for granted what other people are doing, but actually trying to do whatever it takes in order to accomplish a certain visual experience. Um, you can get to really fantastic points and you may not always get to 100%, but you can get pretty far. So during this whole time when I was working at the agency, um, I got to work on a connect book with Jarrett Webb. And this is another aspect of developing a career in this field and isn't exactly branding. Um, but writing this book was a way to explore technology that some people knew about and other, a lot of people didn't. And just trying to figure out how to put it all into words. Because most of the time when you're dealing with technology, it's probably about 80% of everything that you're doing, other people are already familiar with. Um, so it's fairly easy. You're sort of writing by rote. Whereas if you're trying to describe something totally new, like the connect, um, it's just a lot more effort. It's a lot more drain on your brain. You don't really get to be lazy at all. Um, 
because every description, every explanation tends to be fairly original. Um, and at the same time, after we got done, we really realized that's how we want to do things all the time. Uh, you want to be original all the time. You want to be thinking about things in a new way and not simply relying on how other people have done before. And this, again, is one of the fascinating things about working in augmented reality. There's so many new problems to figure out. There's tons of UX problems because when you switch from, say, doing even VR, but especially when you're going from the desktop computer with your keyboard and mouse, uh, switching over to a situation where you either have a pointing device or you're actually trying to touch digital objects with no haptic feedback um, is kind of crazy. And you have to experiment it with like, uh, pretty much uh, go nuts experimenting until you find something that really works for you. And even if you find something, you still want to keep experimenting with it until you find something better. And unlike, say, the way we finally developed the UX for the web, which took, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years until we got to you know, modern flat design, um, with that, you had tons of people working on it with you at the same time. Whereas if you're off doing AR, it's a fairly smaller field. Everybody who's doing it knows each other. Um, and that's, that's an incredible sense of community. Okay. So that's all the gleaning I was doing. And this is how the whole world of AR changed in my own mind. I had originally stepped into it back in 2010 with Connect, thinking of it as a technology problem. And over time, it became an experience problem for me and just a desire to see new experiences. Um, and that's why I started gleaning and collecting all these images and videos and so on, and started throwing those back into experiences that I was creating for other people. Um, one of the things I promised in the description is talk a little bit about the differences between the HoloLens and the Magic Leap 1. And um, they're obviously two years apart. So there's a sense of a horse race uh, between these two devices as they're coming out and things were happening. Um, the HoloLens originally came out and the price was, the developer price was 3000 whereas there were 3500 and they also had like a commercial enterprise pr uh, price of 5000 And the Magic Leap 1 managed to come out for $2,300. Um, HoloLens was running on Windows. Magic Leap was running on Android. And the biggest thing that the Magic Leap 1 did was they doubled the field of view. So it's still a little bit smaller than you would want. Uh, we ultimately would really love a 70-degree field of view, maybe even 90 or more. But um, what they end up with, uh, I think it's around 50 degrees diagonal. Um, it's really, really nice. It's in the comfortable zone. Um, so that felt like a jump forward. Um, the resolution is mostly the same. They're both using time of flight cameras and probably something people don't know about. So the time of flight story for Microsoft is they started off with the Connect 1. With Connect 2, they changed the underlying technology to time of flight, which the best way to describe it is uh, if you imagine your camera shooting out photons uh, like tennis balls, it actually has a timer and waits for those tennis balls to come back into um, the aperture. And it times the difference between how long it takes something to leave and how long it takes it to come back. And using that information, it can figure out how far away a certain object is, how far it was when the tennis ball bounced off this. And throwing out thousands of these very quickly, it's able to generate um, the 3D world around you. 
Microsoft was able to do that because they had tons of history using the Connect and trying to make that better. Um, on the Magic Leap side, it turns out they'd actually hired some of the original developers of um, uh, OpenNI, which was a competitor at that point to the Connect um, that eventually got bought out by Apple. And nobody had known what had happened to those people after they got bought out by Apple because Apple shut down their open source website and a lot of very strange things. But it turns out eventually uh, some of those guys sold off their stocks, uh, bailed out, and then got contacted and convinced to work on the Magic Leap and try to get their uh, 3D cameras working really, really well, which is fascinating. It seems like you never really get out of this business. Somebody's always pulling you in again. Uh, whereas the original HoloLens was very much a hand gesture type thing, the Magic Leap uses a controller, which is sixed off, which means not only can you point it 360 degrees and it knows where it is, but as you move it through space, uh, the whole system actually knows where you are, where your controller is in space too. And that gives you six degrees of freedom. But the big difference between the two devices is uh, comes down to battery. Uh, the battery life tends to be the same. It's about three hours for either the HoloLens or the Magic Leap 1, depending on what you're doing, but it averages around three hours. But you can see from this diagram that the actual battery inside the Magic Leap 1 is massive compared to the HoloLens. And this is one of the trade-offs I uh, want to talk about uh, needing to be done when they create the Magic Leap. It's one of the key differences between the two. So let me pull up some videos for you. Um, okay, again, these are videos that sort of compare the HoloLens and the Magic Leap. And the first one, this is just a, a Navy Periscope video. I love this because it sort of dis explains how the waveguides work. So in both devices, uh, they're sort of like goggles or glasses because you have this layer of glass in front of your face. And the reason you have this layer of glass in front of your face is... Um, uh, that's doing all the work of superimposing your digital content upon the real world. Okay, so, but in order to do that, there are a couple of different techniques, but the waveguide tends to be the one that everybody uses now because it gives you the brightest image. And even then it diminishes the image a little bit. But the trick in doing augmented reality is you want your digital images to be as bright and as strong and as uh, compelling as the real world image that's it's overlaying on top of. And the way the waveguides work is very similar to the way the periscope works, where at the top of your nose, at the bridge of your nose, you have these projectors that are pointing down. They're projecting through the glass that's sitting in front of your eyes. And then over time, it, it turns it, not quite 90 degrees, but turns it enough so that when it comes into your eyes, it looks like you have this very, very bright image overlaid on top of the world. Um, and this works because basically if you're trying to do any sort of projection, uh, the projection would always cut out some of the images of the real world too. So it's almost as if you're doing a projection on top of an invisible screen and you can see whatever's happening behind the screen. And that's, that's the core technology that's being used today. But the trade-off there with waveguides is um, you can only really achieve a certain amount of field of view. And obviously the Magic Leap increased it by twofold with the HoloLens 2. The HoloLens 2 also doubled um, its original field of view and pretty much is comparable to what the Magic Leap has. But 
most people believe that they sort of hit their limit at this point. Um, you just can't bend light any more than they have. Physics doesn't allow it. Um, so in order to make any advances in the future, basically new display technologies have to be created or improved upon in order for us to get there. Um, another video. Sorry, James, I don't think that you were sharing the video, actually. You're still looking at the specs slide. Oh, thank you. Let me see if I can fix that then. There we go. <laughs> Thanks for stopping me, yeah. So this is just a World War II periscope video, but um, it's powerful because it's, it's a really clean image. And once you have it in your mind, then you can always explain waveguides to other people. Um, okay. And hopefully, are you seeing the Chroma system now? This is the magic yes. leap. Yeah, right. we do. So what you have with the magic leap is um, you've got the glasses themselves they sort of look like welder's goggles and they go over your head. But next to it is this round puck and the puck is actually a full computer. And you sort of hang the computer either in your pocket or off of your belt. Um, and the thing is fairly heavy, unlike the HaLense, which is much lighter. Now, the reason it's so heavy um, is because it has a huge battery. And as I said, it, it's approximately about 30 times as powerful as the battery that was used for the HoloLens 1. Additionally, um, you've got your GPU on there. It's generating a lot of heat, so it has a fan attached, whereas the HoloLens doesn't have a fan. And finally, you have this long wire, which frustrates a lot of people going from the goggles themselves to the puck. And the reason you need that is just to um, decrease the latency when you've got this sort of setup going for you, um, because the puck obviously can be fairly far from the goggles themselves. And let me go to the HoloLens then. And this is the HoloLens 2. And the, basic, the design is basically the same as HoloLens 1, where you don't have any wires, you don't have any pucks. And this is because all the CPU and GPU power and the battery too is actually sitting on top of your nose, on top of your forehead. Uh, in order to make that comfortable, it has to be really light, which is why you have a much smaller battery generating um, less heat, but also less power. And the biggest consequence of this is you're also not getting uh, to use a lot of GPU power. So you have to do a lot of um, optimizations in order to make things work in the HoloLens. Whereas on the Magic Leap, um, you always need to do some sort of optimization, but it's not severe. You can get away with a lot on the Magic Leap that you cannot get away with on the HoloLens. But you'll also see that one of the big differences is uh, the way hand gestures are used. With HoloLens 2, hand gestures are primary, and they're really going for a direct interaction, which means you, you touch the objects that you're interacting with, and you move your hands around in order to interact with them, instead of really uh, sort of pointing at things from afar, which is how the HoloLens 1 always worked. And then it, the Magic Leap really sits in between. It primarily depends on its sex stop a sixth off controller, but it also has fairly good hand gestures too, just not as good as the HoloLens 2 does. So these are sort of the power consumption differences uh, between the two devices. And where this becomes really 
important uh, at the end of the day is ultimately at the end of the day. I'm going to turn off the audio. And this is in um, my office space. This is a, it's kind of fascinating. This is a game uh, that's supported, supposed to be really the, the ideal game for the Magic Leap. They took all their greatest creatives, they came together and created this visual story. Uh, and what they're really going for is the notion that you can do serious storytelling inside these devices. And we've seen good storytelling in VR We've never seen it really in the HoloLens. HoloLens tends to be oriented more towards um, enterprise applications. Um, the interesting story about Last Light is I think they'd been working on it for a long time, but when Magic Leap sort of imploded uh, four or five months ago, um, they still had enough people continuing to work on uh, this one internal game. Uh, just to get it out there because they worked on it for so long. And I mean, ultimately, they want to show what their device can do. They want to explain why it's a fantastic tool. Um, and they're doing with this. And one aspect of it is they're doing the um, sort of other world inside the wall feature so that you can tell 3D stories inside the wall here. And they do it fairly well. It's also using the 3D meshes and the spatial sense to find your wall in the first place and tell this sort of story. Um, and here's another part of the game, which is even better. And this is the sort of thing that really differentiates the Magic Leap from the both HoloLens 1 and HoloLens 2. And the reason it's able to is here because the bigger battery enables a much more powerful GPU and gets to use it a lot more. Um, and this is one of the experiences, it looks good when you're rendering it. Um, I'm actually doing a video recording from the device itself, but in person, uh, having it in my living space, it, it's fairly amazing. And we'll see in a little bit what happens is they have characters who are being animated on there. Um, it could be that some of it is motion capture, um, but it also feels like uh, some of it is just stop motion photography based on the way the movements work. All of this is in 3D. And it's actually really kind of amazing. So going back to the, the story of the Magic Leap, um, a lot of it is fairly secretive. Uh, what we sort of know about it behind the scenes is that they did start out in 2010 with Roni Ababitz, uh, who'd made a lot of money on medical devices previously, um, really got into this notion of AR, some of it from watching movies like Minority Report and things like that. And he wanted to create a really great device. And it, it's kind of unclear how much the people in Florida knew about what was going on in Redmond or how much the people in Redmond knew about what was going on in Florida. I think for the most part, they tried to really separate themselves because no one ever wants to be accused of stealing ideas from others. Um, and one of the core things that Magic Leap had was uh, they had this device called the monster. The monster ultimately 
from reports that I've heard, had seven layers of depth to it. So your eyes would focus on seven different layers as you're going through this experience and they're using 3D sound and a lot of other effects. Um, but it used so much horsepower in order to get it running that it actually had to be clamped down onto a table. Uh, and this was sort of the secret of how they got so much investment money. At one point, I think they had $2.5 billion in investment in their device, which was magnitudes more than a lot of other devices, uh, for instance, like the Meta um, out of San Francisco, which I think at its height had about $130 million in investments. So here's the part that really looks like uh, it's stop motion rather than motion capture. Again, really incredible. And you can walk around the whole thing and it's fully 3D and fully immersive. Um, so the problem there was while they're showing all that off, it, it seems like what they're really interested in doing was further off than they're able to come up with. And at some point in 2017 or 2018, they suddenly made a huge jump and were able to use a lot of this underlying technology and put together a device that they released in 2018. And a lot of people would guess that what they did was they reached out to one of their competitors um, and just took in a lot of technology that other people had already done in order to get the AR glasses. And this hasn't really been confirmed. Um, it's just something out there in the rumor mills. And that would explain how they were able to go from nothing in 2017, besides a lot of really great research, um, to something suddenly uh, that they're putting out there and selling and manufacturing in 2018. Um, that was all really great. And then their problem was, and this is a problem that faced Microsoft too, where both companies, the people who develop these devices don't really want to do enterprise applications. What they would love to do is change the world with amazing experiences, amazing games, and uh, day in the life sort of activities. Um, and what Magic Leap had to learn over time and actually change out its whole sales force at a certain point was that there's just no money in that. You can't sell uh, $2,500 devices to consumers at this point. We're not there yet. Um, probably the latest phones are getting us much closer, um, but we're, we're not at the $2,300 point uh, as an on-ramp. So slowly they've been trying to do more enterprise sorts of things. Uh, the company I'm with now actually was part of their grant program and we're building enterprise apps for the most part. But uh, that's a really hard sell. And another thing that really made a huge difference was um, around 2018, the military was uh, putting up, I think it was about $2 billion at that point, now it's more, to, um, and both Magic Leap and HoloLens uh, bid on it in order to have AR devices to help with uh, basically uh, making their soldiers more lethal uh, with augmented reality glasses and automatic targeting. Um, whoever won that basically wins the horse race at that point and ended up being uh, Microsoft, um, which meant uh, Hollands had to work really hard, or I mean, Magic Leap had to work really hard for a while in order to try to catch up. And uh, I think reality finally caught up with them earlier this year, which is a shame because they have some of the most brilliant people working with them and some really great ideas. And they're continuing now, but it meant they had to shrink down and lay out their strategy anew. I'm sure they'll be able to come back stronger than ever, but um, we're at a very strange hiatus point now where the Magic Leap has sort of pulled back and the HoloLens for the most part uh, doesn't seem to be going full force anywhere. Most of its money uh, seems to be coming from the military and 
that's a fairly difficult task to deal with. And I think they're probably spending most of their energies trying to make that work out. Anyway, so that's last slide. Uh, and there's this saying by Hegel that the owl of Minerva comes out at dusk, which just means the coolest stuff happens when it's almost too late, when it's already nighttime in the industry, right? So we've had this 10 year run in augmented reality glasses. We had a high point around 2016 and then 2017, 18. And now it's sort of on the downward curve again. And at the very end of that, uh, we get this really amazing um, application game, The Last Light, which <laughs> if it, it had come out maybe two years earlier, we could have all said, ah, this is what the whole industry about is about. This is what we all should be doing. Um, but sometimes life doesn't work out that way. Okay, so I've been talking a lot. So what I really need to do now is uh, run through some cool videos. Um, this goes back to my gleaning. Um, and there are two videos in particular I really like, sort of about the future of augmented reality. And one of the things you'll notice is that in all the movies with augmented reality effects, that can't be called anything other than augmented reality. Nobody's wearing glasses, right? And this has something to do with uh, the experience versus the technology. We can just assume that we'll solve the technology problem somehow, either by having universal projectors that are 3D or uh, 3D contact lenses or something like that. It, it kind of doesn't matter. It's like Star Trek. That's a gobbledygook speak. Uh, what's really more important is the experience itself. And this is one from a TV show called The Expanse uh, that's on Amazon now. It's from the second season. And what I love about this is it's actually changing modes between different forms of digital technology. So we're starting off with a 3D tablet there. And he pops it up and turns into a 3D augmented reality scene. And he's also interacting with it to show, uh, I think, how they're going to attack um, a satellite base at this that they're working with. Anyways. Um, so this is a great example of how you use technology in a way that doesn't interfere or they're trying to so that it seems natural. Um, it's super smart. But the other cool thing about it is this underlying understanding of how uh, gestural technologies work and how it interacts with other technologies. One of the great stories is when the mouse came along, everybody thought the mouse is going to replace the keyboard, right? Uh, at the time, that seemed like a great idea. And today, we always talk about them as going together. It's the mouse and keyboard. Um, the next big jump was with natural user interfaces where everybody thought what would happen is we'd start doing touch gestures everywhere with our phones and our tablets and so on. And suddenly we'd be able to get rid of the keyboard and mouse. And again, that turns out not to be true. Instead, we have variations in all of these working together all the time. Um, sometimes we're able to use all of them together and sometimes we just have to make a decision that there's a particular interface for a specific task and you don't really want to alternate it. Um, and that's what's happening uh, in these sorts of visuals. And this is a black mirror thing where you have these interactions that actually mix it up. It, it doesn't have to be just one mode of interaction with gestures or typing and so on. Instead, there are ways of making all of these work together. And every time you combine them to work in a certain way, it's different from how you combine them to work uh, with a different set of uh, vectors of input. Uh, that's really cool. That's something that hopefully we'll reach at some point. Glasses. Um, 
I love this because this is a original HUD display. And one of the problems in 3D gaming these days is everybody hates the HUD because to a certain extent it interferes with your playing, but people are so used to it that we can't find a better way of doing things without the head-up display in front of your vision. So this is another aspect of augmented reality, which to a certain extent is sort of core to it. You're augmenting the world with data, right? And there's actually a really great example of this uh, almost 20 years later cinematically. Um, uh, it's from The Beautiful Mind. And we're using these simple visuals in order to show what's happening in his head. And again, it's actually the sort of thing you would want to be able to use augmented reality for, something that filters the world for you and pulls out the really important information. And this is a scene from Westworld that I really love because it, it's doing augmented reality and actually reintroduces the glasses, which for some reason have been banished from um, sci-fi movies for the most part. And in the near term, this is sort of like the near future of augmented reality where we'd actually have glasses, but instead of having this, these huge goggles that cover up half your head, like a bicycle helmet or something, uh, these are fashionable, they're easy to wear, and they do give you the for the most part, uh, pure data in your visual field of view. But what I think is really beautiful isn't, I mean, the display technology is one thing, and it's very cool, and the interactions and so on, but uh, what's gonna be really fun is figuring out how are we gonna use gestures. Right now, for the most part, uh, Microsoft is playing with direct interactions, which means you reach out and grab something, you reach out or and flip a switch. But I think what people really want out of these sorts of interactions, what they expected to get out of the Kinect was to be able to actually control the world with these gestures. Um, and this is the weird thing about gestures and the way we use language in general, which is when we use gen gestures, it's generally combined with language and it's generally also an expression of thought. And that's the difficulty of doing gestures really well. We want them to somehow express what we have going on in our mind and express our will into the world itself. This is from the remake of Minority Report. It only had one season, but one of the cool things about it was the sci-fi expert that they had on the, the show to figure out all these UI interfaces uh, is a man named Greg Bornstein, who started off doing creative coding with the Connect itself. And he had a brother who's a producer in Hollywood, so he ended up joining up with him. And this is probably one of the most amazing things he's ever done because it's almost uh, like a textbook of gestural interfaces at around 2015, 2016. This is what everybody was sort of shooting for to see how many ways can we use these gestures in order to interact with the world. There you've got the multimodal going on, which is another underlying story of the gestural world. You want to have multiple devices. This is just a crazy feature, but it's using some sort of X-ray uh, vision in order to discover uh, the daughter of the murder victim hiding under the cabinets. Awesome, right? So that's an example of somebody who's been doing the gestural world and the AR world for about, he's, yeah, for a long time, but at that point, probably for 10 years, getting his shot and a budget to actually play out a prototype of what he really meant it all to be, um, which is what's magical about it. But when we talk about gestures, if we abstract the technology altogether, I think ultimately what we want is 
this core notion of magic where our gestures are expressing our will in the world. Uh, the gestures combined with thought, it's not just hand motions alone that you'd have to learn, but somehow these get interpreted to make things happen in the world. And it could be that augmented reality is gonna die out this year or something, right? But it may be it's gonna have a comeback, in which case in 20 years or 30 years, we can have this world where we have augmented reality everywhere. And it's ultimately gonna be this sort of uh, magical effect where you learn special key codes. This goes back to my coding uh, background. You learn the special techniques and the special finger gestures in order to interact with the world that's full of computers that are saying they're trying to understand what you want all the time. And for me, this is how augmented reality ultimately fits into the world. And always the hard part about working in it now is it's not just the impatience of waiting for it to come along. Uh, that's just gonna take hard work and it's a pleasure to be part of trying to make it come along. Um, the hard part now is just finding opportunities in order to try out these ideas. Um, but lots of people do, especially in the creative coding industry. Uh, Roland Smink just joined on. Uh, he's a friend from the Netherlands who actually is able to make a living uh, doing extremely creative stuff with these sorts of uh, technologies. Um, and it's good. And you do have to make sacrifices sometimes um, because a lot of times you don't get paid as much as other people who are doing much more boring stuff, like again, data entry applications. Um, but the payoff is you really feel accomplished with what you've done. You're part of history as you're making these things. Um, and it's just incredibly fun to do. Anyways, thank you. I'm going to try to go back to the slides now. Great. And we're at Q&A time. Uh, hi, James. Thank you for your presentation. It was so really, really good, like visually really pleasing. And I really like uh, the stuff that you show. Uh, yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, any questions? Yeah, uh, I have one question. Uh, my background is UX UI design. So uh, when we do like UX UI for uh, website or app, we usually do, for example, like, oh, research, right? UX research, user experience research. So we do personas, we find who's the user, and then we start working out the uh, journey map and then start finding the feature. And we create a bunch of, you know, like the traditional UI design. And can I ask you, like, what's like, uh, what's your process to find out um, the UI? How, how do you design UI and integrate with all the gesture? Are you finding like a, your target audience, or you just dive in and start working on the UI? You were all like, what's the uh, difference between the Hololens UI design and the traditional U, UX UI design? Yeah, so Julia Schwartz, if you look for her online, uh, she's actually, she works on hand gestures in particular for the HoloLens too, and does amazing work. And uh, I wish I had a link to it, but she does actually a really good talk of going through how they design the UI and um, 
uh, interactions for the HoloLens. And that kind of depended on actually having a slightly bigger budget than I usually have for doing these things. Um, but that in itself is very fascinating. And it actually maps really well to traditional UI development uh, and the agency when you actually, when you have the resources and you can do A-B testing and you can bring people in to do user testing. So a few times I've been able to do that. Um, but the really hard part is prototyping, whereas there are so many tools for prototyping webs these days that you know somebody can put it out very quickly. Prototyping for augmented reality is much more difficult. So one way of doing it sometimes, um, and this follows the Bill Buxton model, is just use whatever you've got. Uh, we'll use these connects. Uh, it's this sort of building tool, the connects where you can sort of create this thing and lay it, put it over your head. And it's just wires and um, a little bit like an erector set. And you build your UI out that way just to figure out, to go beyond what it's like in your mind to see what it would be like to actually interact with the world with these objects in it. And even pieces of cardboard, pieces of paper with drawings on it are at least a starting point for figuring out your UX, right? Because uh, Again, especially in a 3D space, things just don't work the way you think they do in your head. Um, you're constantly surprised and just being able to map it out in the real world is really important. But then uh, another way I can do it, and this goes back to just being a gleaner with sci-fi movies and so on, is um, I've told myself a story that the 3D movies are, or not 3D movies, but sci-fi movies um, that have these sorts of 3D interfaces uh, are the prototyping and are the UX research uh, for the rest of us, right? I don't have the money to do that, but uh, you know, a Star Wars sequel will have uh, $200 million to do research like that. And I'm glad they're doing it so I don't have to. And the trick is just going through and finding those scenes and seeing what works and what doesn't. And then you just criticize it like crazy, right? Um, like the criticism everybody enjoys and hopefully everybody knows now as you go back to 2002's Minority Report and you've got Tom Cruise putting up his arms and manipulating things. And the truth is, it's really hard to lift your arms like that. Your arms can't take it. Uh, even if you're not carrying anything very heavy, you can do about five to 10 minutes and then you're exhausted. And then the UX term everybody gave that was uh, gorilla arms. And that becomes a big danger in doing augmented reality hand gesture interfaces. You have to avoid the gorilla arms problem. Um, in the HoloLens too, the way they get around that is the the cameras that they use to actually pick out gestures are much taller than the camera that they're using to do their 3D meshes. So even if you have your arm at the side of your body and your hand very close in front of you, that's actually the right range that they're picking up so that it's gonna pick up those gestures for you. As long as you don't ever get your elbows up over your shoulders, you're gonna be pretty comfortable doing that. Uh, so that's, you know, Going back, that's 18 years of UX knowledge that somebody finally implemented well. Yeah, um, um, can you share uh, the talk uh, and uh, the, the link of the talk and uh, some uh, resource for creating UX UI in uh, XR space? Uh, can you share uh, the chat? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll find it for you. I'll have to send yeah. it later, but I'd yeah. be happy to. Cool, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, any questions, feel free to unmute yourself if you want to ask any questions to James. Hey, James. It's Elizabeth. Elizabeth, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I dropped in. Um, I didn't get the full talk, but um, 
I am particularly interested because I've been tasked with this um, to do some research on um, particularly VR and education and distance learning. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to know what you have seen that is not like hyper, hyper experimental, but somebody, anybody that's moving into that space in a more commercial, more real potential. Um, just what, what have you seen so far? What do you know? Uh, mostly in VR. So it's... AR or VR, but, but mostly like really trying to deal with this distance learning situation. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, it, there are a lot of companies that are in the space just trying to find um, some grappling hooks, right? Some way to get in. And mm-hmm. the moment COVID hit, I mean, they're, they're you know, privately going, oh, yeah, at last, this is our moment. Uh, so, and it, it tends to be the, the core ones are the ones who are trying to get into the business space first mm-hmm. um, because they need to go for, it's a hierarchy of money, right? Enterprises have a lot of money. Schools tend to have a lot less. Mm-hmm. And if they can get enough traction in the first, then uh, they'll be able to start selling schools too. Even mm-hmm. though in general, a lot of these companies will start off in education and suddenly realize that they need to make that switch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish I could remember some names off the top of my head, but there, there are tools that are a lot like VR chat, if you've ever done mm-hmm. uh, VR chat. Uh, they're just a lot more specialized and more narrow. It's not about creating worlds, but basically just being in the same space and, and um, sharing tools. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm particularly interested in anybody that has incorporated, like all educators use these massive learning management systems that like, you know, keep track of grades and keep track of activity and keep track of track of attendance and keep track of participation. And um, I was just, you know, and I've, I've definitely played around with um, Altspace VR and mm-hmm. Engage and Mozilla and Rumi and all those, but I was just wondering um, I would love to see if you do have, um, if anything comes comes your way right. <laughs> uh, <think> about me. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've got your email. Yes, uh, you I'll, I'll go research that for you. And, you don't and, have to go research it, but just if, if something comes to your to your mind, you know. Yeah, I've 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 got it all somewhere. I just okay. need to pull it out. Okay, cool, great, yeah. great to see you talking. Always great. <laughs> Good to see you again too, Elizabeth. Yeah. Yeah, any other questions? Yeah, if you could share all that information with Amanda, that would be fantastic because then she would be able to share with the community. So yeah. James, thank you very much for, for your presentation. That was awesome. Um, one of the, I, I've, I've, I like the idea of augmented reality. And one of the things that I always see, and, and you've explained very much the, the limitations perhaps of, of why this oftentimes happens is from a, from a first point of view, you know, from the user. But um, I work in, in Hollywood and we're, do, we're very excited now to be working with virtual production. And yeah. one of the nice things about virtual production is the interactiveness of different components at the same time and be able to visualize a scene uh, very famously with the, the, the Jungle Book or the, or the Lion King films where the process was of the participation of these virtual worlds in utilizing uh, some of the devices that you've mentioned. How do mm-hmm. you see, uh, how close are we to, to apply um, different, different systems, different techniques in, in, a, in a less cumbersome, heavy devices? 
uh, and really be able to manipulate and, and, and participate with creating worlds or, or the, the, the applications that, that you mentioned? How, how do you see that happening? Uh, it's, it's probably closer to five to 10 years. The, the problem is, again, making things smaller, um, but especially with these devices because they, they put off so much heat, um, you have to make it smaller while also controlling the heat. And it, it's, I think it tends to be the heat that is a limiting factor at this point. Uh, it's the main reason that the HoloLens, um, uh, not only because of the weight, they need a lighter battery, but just because uh, all the heat that's put off by a GPU running at full power is just too much, uh, especially if you've got this thing sitting on your head. Um, I think that's that's actually the limitation at this point. You just sort of have to live with these slightly cumbersome headsets. Um, on the other hand, uh, I don't know if you've tried the HoloLens too, but one of the nice things about it is, yeah, uh, it still looks awkward, but it feels good. It's I think it's around two pounds now, which is bearable. It, it doesn't wear you down. It doesn't sit on your nose the way the original HoloLens did. Um, so that that's actually going to work probably for most people. It, it doesn't feel as awkward. Cool. So, thank you very much. And once again, great presentation. Thank you. Uh, hey, any James, other question? This, hi, James. This is Jack. Hey. Um, where do you think we are on the uh, the hype curve? Are uh, we which, uh, are the, the hype cycle? Sorry. So we. In the, oh, yeah. the, the trough of disillusion, or are we sort of on the periphery? Haven't come to it yet, coming out of it? Where would you say we are? No, we're, we're definitely at the dissolution phase. I think the, the moment that, um, oh, for everyone who doesn't know, Jarrett Webb wrote the Connect book with me. He's amazing. Um, but we're, we're at the tail end of it. Uh, after the implosion at Magic Leap, and again, it's important to say, I think they'll get back on their feet. They're making all the right moves. But I think that implosion was a wake-up call for a lot of people. And if you go back two years before that, um, when Magic Leap came along, there's so many people who really dislike Microsoft that they're betting heavily on Magic Leap just because it wasn't Microsoft. So having Magic Leap run into all these financial issues uh, has really put a dampener on um, AR headsets at this point. Uh, hopefully it'll come around again, but... Um, yeah, we're, we're definitely at one of the valleys right now, uh, unless somebody else comes along and does something really stunning. For instance, double the field of view again, or uh, let's say actually have goggles that look like real glasses. And I think there, there are a few companies that are promising that now. Um, one of them is a company uh, that got started up by an engineer who used to work at Magic Leap. Uh, but the proof of the pudding is always going to be the eating. So we've got to wait for that to come out and people really uh, test it heavily and see what sort of applications you can really run on it. But if somebody can, can make that sort of jump, um, then that'll probably give new legs to the augmented reality spatial computing world would be my guess. Oh, any other questions? Yeah, I had a quick question. Uh, thank you, James, for your presentation. Uh, I was—I uh, saw you talk a little bit uh, at one of the Hololens summits about kind of the gesture-based stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and tupping, which is the hand motions you showed a little bit of. Uh, yeah. So you're in London, then. Yeah. 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 Uh, and 
I'm wondering how you feel about if AR becomes commonplace and an everyday thing, how you think that'll change the way people interface with each other. So, you know, arcade games has a mm -hmm. whole look and feel to it when you're in an arcade. Sports uh, tournament parties where you all gather and watch, you know, co cooperatively watch a sport. Those have a whole look and feel to them. If everybody has AR glasses on, how do you think that'll change the way we interact with each other in person? That, that's great. So uh, let's break that out into several things. First, you talked about the tutting. Tutting is something that was used in this uh, TV show, The Magicians, uh, but it actually came out of dance moves. And the notion behind it was uh, you use your fingers to do dance moves. And then the producers of uh, The Magicians decided that, well, that's really cool. And that looks like uh, arcane magic ritual finger gestures, right? And that's why they introduced it into uh, their concept of how magic works in their world. But coming at it from a UX and technology side, one of the things we do with keyboards is we have chords on our keyboard, right? Where if you do a combination of shift and A, you get a capital A. And then over time, we keep coming up with more and more of them. And then we come up with more and more secret chords, right? That will do special things on your Windows operating system or on your Mac. Um, and this is the weird sort of technology world that we're into now where you actually have secret gestures on your keyboard that only some people know and other people don't know. Um, one story behind it is that you could have super users, but probably another story is people just like knowing secrets. They like being on the inside. So this notion of uh, chord gestures, if we ever get to that point, solves two problems. One, it creates private communities that only know uh, these secret hand systems for their own little private world. Um, and the other side is there's, only so much you can do with your typical gestures, with shoving things around, with uh, tapping from the HoloLens 1 or the Bloom gesture from the HoloLens 1. You can only combine them in so many ways. But So by including tutting along with all of that, we can multiply the number of gestures that are recognized incredibly. Another aspect of that secret languages uh, is there's this fantastic book, Rainbow Zen, that um, Werner Vinge wrote in 2006. And one of the concepts he came up with is belief circles. And the notion is, as people walk around the world, they get to form private social circles that other people don't have. So even though you'll have multiple people in the same world, they'll be seeing different things. Uh, one notion, one way of understanding that is, say, sci-fi fandoms or fantasy fandoms or sports fandoms. Uh, if you're for the Jets, then you only see Jets paraphernalia. If you're for the Rams, you only see Rams paraphernalia in the world around you. And you'll have your special gestures for that. Or more radically, if you have nothing to do with sports and are really into Balstar Galactica, then your world is one that reflects Balstar Galactica and everyone who's with you also sees that theme too. Uh, and of course, what happens then is we have this counter story to what the story is that we want to tell with AR. The original story with AR that uh, especially people who are trying to get funding for it was that this is the killer for, uh, this is a smartphone killer, finally. Because smartphones are great, they change the world, but the problem with smartphones is everybody's always looking down at their hands. And so we've disrupted society. Um, and so we got to get people looking at each other again. So then the story is if you put these goggles on your head, um, 
then people will have to make eye contact in order to interact. At the same time, you'll be able to see the data overlaid. Uh, there are parts of it that aren't totally convincing and parts of it that really depend on future technology, such as making the glasses smaller so that they don't interfere with people even being able to make eye contact. But that general story was really, really good um, for explaining first why AR technology is worth $2.5 billion of investment uh, and uh, second, where we really intend to go with this, that everything should be social. Here's how that got really messed up. The first one is that uh, we not only never did, made games, but we're not really doing social apps with AR. Uh, both of those stories have sort of gotten killed instead. Everybody's running really fast to figure out how do we make these tools effective in the enterprise because enterprises have lots of money that they could spend in order to drive the technology forward. And then probably further down the line, um, once that money's been embedded and there's a lot of money backing this and everybody believes in it, then we start going for those lower tier things that we really actually wanted to do, such as games and social tools. And then the second story that breaks down is that it totally makes sense. It's something we see in the country now. It's how people behave. They prefer the private fandoms to actually working together and having a common world, I think. Uh, this is just an exacerbation of internet technology in general, right? Uh, we want the internet to foster everybody sharing, everybody doing open source, everybody working together. And instead, what we discover is, uh, no, we'd rather have these private channels in Facebook where we only deal with people who think like us. And there's no reason to think that AR wouldn't tend to go in the same direction. Um, there's always a possibility that it makes people socialize more, but more likely people will sort of follow their own natures and split up into separate belief circles so that they don't really have to uh, be confronted with either other people or the real world. That's my long answer. That's good. That's awesome. Who is that? Who is that book by? Werner Vinge. Okay. He's, he's amazing. So Rainbow Zen, um, 10 years ago, you couldn't go to a talk about VR or AR without having somebody show a slide of the Werner Vinge book, Rainbow Zen. Yep. Cool. Thanks. Yep. yep. Any other questions? Yeah, I think to piggyback off to that last conversation, chasing after the enterprise is because they have money. And, it, and part of the reason why you need money is that the production of these, these applications is, is pretty expensive. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things that you think should happen to, to reduce the operational costs of, of production? Oh, great question. Um, so if we, we follow the model that Microsoft had with the enterprise, uh, one of the things that always tended to lower costs was first standardizing about tools and UX, so that people weren't spending a lot of effort doing that. And the, especially for the enterprise, the trade-off is then you don't have really cool user interfaces. You have sort of boring gray interfaces. But on the other hand, you can start knocking them out really quick. Um, Microsoft started doing that at the first level. and part of the business strategy for Microsoft going back to, man, the year 2000 was they would let third party vendors come in and start creating UXs for their tools and platforms. And additionally start creating uh, tool sets, which tend to be controls, right? For interactions you need uh, on the web or a desktop app, you need drop downs, you need buttons, you need uh, maybe sliders. Um, 
So people would come in just standardize on those, and then you would have a pick of maybe three themes. It can be red, or it can be blue, or it can be gray. Um, but that tended to work for the enterprise world, where um, people weren't really looking for great experiences necessarily. They were trying to accomplish certain tasks. And I think if we had something like that, that would tend to bring down the development cost for creating um, augmented reality applications. Uh, just as sort of the first step would just be standardized guidelines for how do you go about just creating something that does data entry or creating something that monitors um, a, a device or pipes that you've got or standardizing the way you would handle, and this is a really common one for some reason, uh, airplane maintenance uh, with augmented reality. And if that story gets really common so that we don't really have to expend calories thinking about it anymore, and additionally had pre-built tools that show us how to do it. Um, I think that it, it's not the great story that I would love, which is we create great games and, and you know, mind-blowing things. But thinking of it differently, thinking of it from a financial aspect, uh, that's probably the thing that has to happen in order to get more traction inside the enterprise world, would be my guess. Any other questions? Yeah, uh, as for uh, AR, VR, MR, which one do you think kind of like, like uh, which tools will you use or what do you see uh, those three different devices in the future? I'm sorry, can you, so it's VR, AR, and what else? Um, MR, Mixed Reality, which is HoloLens. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the goal is still good that if we could make these augmented reality headsets, mixed reality headsets smaller, uh, that could replace the smartphone. Uh, I think we've, a lot of people feel like we've sort of reached the end of what we can do with smartphones, right? And if we could just translate that into a different form factor, it might work out much better for us. Um, maybe. On the flip side, it may be socially. People really do prefer being able to look at their phones when they're in the elevator so they don't have to deal with other people. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll find out. Uh, that'll be the possible future for mixed reality, though. Um, and everything that we're doing now for AR, I think for the most part, works better in a headset rather than as something that you hold in your hand and with a few exceptions. Um, so AR and VR, um, there's a lot of debate about this. There are people who feel that VR was just part of the road to getting us to augmented reality. And there are people who feel it was the other way around, right? That VR is really the place to rest, whereas augmented reality is too far off and it's never really gonna make it. Um, I tend to go with the people who are into AR and I love VR, it's, it's a lot better at this point. The technology is solid and the prices are coming down. Um, but the, the problem I have with it is that it's not interactive and it tends to be uh, private escapist experiences, right? Um, and those are fun, those are good. But I think, yeah, the, the games we all enjoy are the ones that really are interactive. Those are like games like um, World of Warcraft it was able to create a community. People were able to find do, things to do inside that world that weren't specified by the game creators themselves. Um, and it has this crazy longevity. People are still doing it. It's still making money. Um, uh, 
even though the, the graphics aren't that good anymore, the, the game mechanics aren't up to snuff, but people have both an affection for it and it accomplished certain tasks really well, which is creating these communities. Um, and in a world where we're probably separated more and more all the time, uh, having ways of actually reaching out and feeling whatever that weird social feel is of being around other people and having their opinions affect how you see the world uh, is really important to us, I think. Cool. Yeah, any other questions? I saw um, there are some questions um, in chat. So yeah, so let's see whether we cover all the questions. Um, uh, I think Abhamayu, do you want to ask questions? I want to ask how to go about with the interactions designed for VR and AR. Yeah, I think um, I, that is a lot like your question, Dominique. Yeah, but, right, um, right. Yeah, so the, the, the way I approach it is if, if you can manage to have a, a team to do traditional um, design, then you're set. That's the way to go. If you can't, and most people can't, then the, the way I go about it is actually just going through tons of movies and really analyzing them carefully to see why they do the things they do, try to pick out the things that work and the things that don't work. And then the final piece is recreating it. So um, I often have pieces of paper I just stick up on my walls to emulate the interactions um, or use children's um, erector set toys or similar things or even Lego blocks to recreate the sort of interface I wanna build um, just to see what the feelsies are when you're working with that. And that tends to be a much quicker way to prototype. And then of course, there's uh, over time, more and more people have come out with applications. And that's the final way, just um, trying out what other people are doing and experimenting with and try to figure out what works with them. Because uh, sometimes stealing is just a lot easier than trying to come up with something from scratch. Yeah, uh, and do you have any like softwares uh, like that you, you usually use for prototyping uh, AR, VR, or MR? No. <laughs> Just like I, a I wish, paper, yeah. pens, paper and kind is. of Lego blocks stuck anywhere and you feel, you imagine. It's very manual, yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah. And do you see any, because I remember I saw one of the uh, Microsoft software, they are trying to, have some, um, you know, some tools for people to make some prototypes. Uh, mm -hmm. do you, what, what do you see about that? I forget the name, but I try in one of the Unity event. And mm -hmm. then it seems like I can create a bunch of balls and I can mm -hmm. create something. And I mean, the interface looks really complicated. Yeah. And then I am doubting like, who can use it because there are so many buttons on two of your, like, I think it's called Microsoft Mixed Reality or something. Yeah, or Windows Mixed Reality. And mm -hmm. there are so many buttons when you just grab the, the controller and yeah. I was trying to find which button I need to use. So yeah, what do you see those like experimental um, uh, like prototype or? Yeah, I, I'm almost embarrassed. So I've, I've played with those. I've played with other ones from, um, yeah, there are various vendors who do similar things, right? Where you can have simple shapes in, or, in order to recreate 3D uh, interactions. 
I remember trying them. I remember thinking, this is really cool. This, this is a great idea. And then I never went back again. I don't know why. I think, I think it might be because um, those are basically in VR, right? Not in AR. And yeah. the, the difference between VR and AR, again, is um, I think our brains function differently when we're in this other world, this other space, and when we're actually inside our own physical space. Uh, one thing is inside the physical world, I'm hyper aware of what I look like when I'm doing something, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I'm interacting, one of the things in the back of my mind is, do I look dorky when I'm doing this? Because obviously, you don't want people looking dorky when they're doing it. On the other hand, in VR, we don't really care, right? Everybody looks mm -hmm. really dumb when they're interacting with the VR. <laughs> and, but we're able to ignore it because um, we have this different mindset that we assume nobody is watching us in VR. Um, mm -hmm. And that's like a, it's a famous saying by Elvis Presley, right? Uh, he enjoys the nighttime because when it's dark, it's as if God isn't watching. So that's a bit of, that's a bit like what uh, VR is. Whereas with AR, you're constantly aware of either real people around you or imagined people around you, right? Yeah, right. And it's, it's a fairly different experience in that way. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you can share uh, some of the uh uh, information or some uh, links uh, to a group uh, um, yeah to discord group that would be great yeah so yeah I think um, I really like your presentation it feels so sci-fi and uh, one of uh, I remember I read uh, Charlie Fink's book it seems mm -hmm. like um, sci-fi movie always lead kind of like the XR technology once we kind of imagine something um, yeah. the movie and then all the technology star follows. Yeah. yeah. So it starts yeah. with inspiration, right? Yeah, right, right. Those are the great experience, uh, like inspirations. Uh, anyone has any questions? Last question. Anyone? Okay, yeah, I've already posted like, like all your uh, information. And uh, if you want to connect with James, feel free to connect with him and thank you, uh, James, um, to uh, speak for this event. Yeah, That's a pleasure. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And if you want to watch the recorded video, because this event is kind of recording event, and you can go to the YouTube channel. And James, I will um, um, send you a Google uh, Doc link so you can uh, download your uh, event videos as well. Okay. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. See you. Yeah. See you next time. Bye-bye. 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 Bye. Thank you. Thank you.